Good afternoon. Please turn in your copy of the scriptures to James chapter 2, verse 14 to 26. James chapter 2, verse 14 to 26. This afternoon we turn to one of the most difficult passages in the book of James. Not only is this teaching difficult to understand, but it's full of hard-hitting rebukes. But my friends, James wrote this letter to the church for our spiritual good so that we might endure in faith. So listen now carefully to the gracious words of Jesus Christ in James 2, verse 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the holy word of God. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, we come to you acknowledging our weakness and our sin. We acknowledge our limitation in understanding your word rightly. We ask now that you would help us by the gift of your spirit to see with eyes of faith. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to see what James has for us in your word. We pray that your word would examine our hearts, would expose the genuineness of our faith or lack thereof, that you convict us of sin and help us to repent and trust in Christ. We ask that your word would go forth in power now, that you would open the eyes of the blind and strengthen the, the, the faith of your saints. In the almighty name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. How do you know something is real or genuine? This is a question I ask myself almost every time when I walk into a souk or a kiosk in the mall. You see, we live in a day and an age when almost anything can be ripped off as a counterfeit. From Apple products to shoes and jewelry, 
many businesses will claim to sell genuine products that are actually cheap imitations. And what makes counterfeits so deceiving is that at first glance, they look real. Unless you inspect a product very carefully, you might not even know that it was fake until it breaks a few months later. In an article by the New York Times, it describes the adverse effects of counterfeits. Writes, worldwide, there has been instances of fake chargers causing electrocution deaths, phony cosmetics making a buyer's face swell up, and pet supplements sickening dogs. Immigration and customs enforcement and other law enforcement agencies have reported finding carcinogens, bacteria, and get this, waste from humans and rodents in counterfeit cosmetics. Fake chargers and cheaply made lithium-ion batteries can damage your electronics and even catch fire. You might be thinking that you're buying MAC makeup, but no, my friend. Instead, you get mascara full of rodent droppings. Think about that the next time you find a good deal online. You might get more than you had bargained for. But friends, there's actually a counterfeit far more dangerous than rodent feces and electrocution. It's a counterfeit of faith. You see, there are people around the world, and maybe some even in this room, whose soul is in danger. If I were to ask you why God should let you into heaven, many of you would have the right answers. You can quote your favorite theologian. You can explain the gospel without hesitation. You even come to church every Friday, and yet you are woefully deceived because your faith is dead. You see, there is a kind of faith, a saving faith, that leads to eternal life. But there's also another kind of faith, call it a counterfeit faith, that really is no faith at all. Confesses to know God, but has no lasting benefits and will eventually lead to eternal destruction in hell. My friends, what kind of faith do you have? Is your faith true or counterfeit? Is your profession in, to, in Christ genuine or false? In our passage this afternoon, James wants to help us examine the authenticity of our faith by showing us what true faith in Christ looks like. True faith will always produce good works. True faith in Christ will always produce good works of obedience to Christ. So in verse 14 to 26, James shows us two marks or signs of genuine faith. First, we see that true faith is always accompanied by good works. True faith is always accompanied by by good works. Or to say it negatively, as James says it, faith without works is dead. And we'll see this in verse 14 to 17. Let's look at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? As we saw last week, James had just finished explaining how true religion is lived out in the church. 
We fulfilled the law of Christ by not showing partiality, especially to those who are poor. Clearly, these Christians in this church were being tempted to pander to the rich and disregard the most needy among them. Remember, this was a church under immense pressure of persecution and trials. These hardships were testing their faith and were causing fractures in their relationships. And James wants to make sure that these brothers and sisters continue to live out the gospel even as they're being tested by suffering. And in verse 14, we see that James wants to press this point further, knowing that there were some in the body who might be tempted to disregard his previous call to love. They had professed faith in Christ, and they thought their eternal security was secure. It's okay, James. I have faith. I'll make it to heaven in the end. I'm suffering too, you know. I'm poor. God will understand. So James confronts their wrong thinking by presenting a hypothetical scenario. We see that from the word if. So do you see that in the text? If someone says. And what are they saying? That they have faith, but they don't have works. When James talks about works, he's clearly, in context, talking about good works that are produced by faith. Think back to what James said in chapter 1, that everyone who is born again first receives the word, believes it, and then they do it. The gospel bears fruit of obedience in the believer. But if someone says that they have faith but no works... What good or what benefit is that faith? Is that really faith at all? And the most pressing question of them all is, can that faith save a person? Can that faith save him? Well, do you want to know the answer? Do you want to know what faith without works is like? James tells us. He says it's like telling a poor boy who is dying of hunger in the slums to go and be filled without ever giving him anything to eat. Look at verse 15 to 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the needs needed for the body, What good is that? What good is that? Here, the phrase brother or sister, James is clearly referring to fellow members in the congregation. They are poorly clothed, which literally means naked or bare. We also see that they do not have enough food for the day. James is describing a member of the church who is in abject poverty who will not survive long without the generosity of others. It's as if one of our members came to church next Friday looking like they spent the night in a garbage dump. Their clothes are ripped and stained, and they smell like they haven't had a bath in a week. And as you greet him, you quickly direct him to the corner of the hall because he might be a distraction during the service. And after the service is concluded and you've shown partiality and dishonored him, as the service concludes, you tell the brother, go home in peace, be clothed, be filled. God will provide your every need this week. 
What good is it if we speak blessing to a brother in need, but are unwilling to care for their most basic needs? Here, James wants to both confront us in how we care for the poor in our congregation, but he also uses this as an illustration of how absurd it is to say that you have faith, but you have no works. Can that type of faith do anything? Can that faith save a person? The answer is a resounding no. In fact, James says that this type of faith is really no faith at all. It's dead. Look again at verse 17. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Beloved, faith that does not have works is no faith at all. Your profession of faith in Christ, if it does not produce good works, is like a rotting carcass in the ground. It is lifeless, ineffective, and utterly useless. Listen to how Douglas Moo, in his commentary, summarizes faith that has no works. James is arguing that the kind of faith he has just described is not merely outwardly inoperative, but inwardly dead. He's not really contrasting faith and works as if these were two alternative options in one's approach to God. He is rather contrasting a faith that, because it is inherently defective, produces no works, and a faith that, because it is genuine, does result in action. So faith, does not, faith that does not produce works is defective. It's dead. It's not faith at all. And it does not benefit your soul, and it will not save you on the final day of judgment. Rather, this counterfeit of faith will lead you straight to hell. One day, some of us will come to Christ, and Jesus will say, Depart from me. I never knew you. My friends, what is the measure of your faith? James tells us to look at our life. Look at your works. How do you use your time? How do you spend your money? What grabs your attention the most and has the affection of your heart? What do you do? What you do tells you a lot about what or who you worship. What you do with your time, your money, what you think about, what you love, tells you a lot about what you worship. Do you want to know how to measure the genuineness of your faith? Well, listen to what the Apostle John says in 1 John 2, verse 2. He writes, Jesus is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So Jesus bears the wrath for our sins and puts it away. How do we know that we are forgiven in Christ? He continues and says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 
But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is the way we know if our faith is genuine. We walk in the same way Christ walked. We love his word and we obey his commands. Friends, true faith in Christ is always, without no exception, accompanied by good works. So first, we see that our faith is accompanied by good works. And second, we see that true faith is completed or perfected by works. And we see this in verse 18 to 26. Let's look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. You see here, James anticipates a rebuttal that someone might make among his listeners. Yeah, James, but you say that faith without works is dead, but James, you have faith and I have works. You don't have to possess both faith and works to be saved, do you, James? James then graciously turns to that brother or sister and exposes the foolishness of their thinking. He he responds in verse 18. He says, James says, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. You want to know if your faith is good? Look what it produces, Yanni. For instance, you say that you make the best coffee in Sharjah, but what if you've never actually brewed a cup of coffee? James, on the other hand, puts a fresh cup of coffee before us and says, you want to know how good my coffee is? Taste it. Come see for yourself. As an American idiom goes, the proof is in the pudding. We see the quality of faith by what it does. You say that you believe sound doctrine? Great! What does it do for you? Even the demons do something. Their knowledge of God leads them to shudder and fear. Now, friends, this is an important warning for us. We at Grace Church love sound doctrine, and rightly so. The gospel is dependent on sound teaching. It is right for you to understand the doctrine of the Trinity. It is good for you to be able to articulate the nuances of particular atonement. Beloved, you do well to read the greatest theologians and to share the gospel with the most simplest child. But, but, if your knowledge of God does not move you to worship to offer up your life as a living sacrifice to God in obedience, then what good is it? What good is your knowledge if it does not produce works of faith? If your life is not changed by the truths you believe, then what does that really say about your faith? If your faith is not producing good works, then the greatest theological knowledge 
is utterly useless and is vain. It's useless and vain. Beloved, the scriptures do not move your heart to worship week after week after week. Then I beg you to examine yourself to see if you really are in the faith. Now, James turns to the heart of his argument in verse 20 to 26. So look at verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Here James is using a pun in the Greek to expose the absurdity of this false teaching. He's saying, do you want to be shown or proven that faith apart from works is workless? Of course, faith that does not work is workless. It does nothing. It's useless. And like a good lawyer, James calls two witnesses to the stand in order to illustrate that true faith must include works. First, he calls Abraham to the stand in verse 21. Look at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, maybe your reformed spider senses are going off and you want to say, no! Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. Yes, Abraham was justified by faith, but was he not also justified by works? What does James mean? Well, we know that the word justify means to declare someone righteous in the courtroom of God. And James wants to show us in the next several verses what he means that Abraham was justified by works. So before you make your final assessment, let's hear the rest of James's defense in verse 22 to 23. He says, You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. James details two ways that Abraham was justified by works. Two ways that Abraham was justified by works. First, his faith and works were active together. His faith and works were active together. And second, his faith was completed by his works. So first, faith and works were active together. As we've already seen, James is concerned about the quality or the measure of our faith. James is not saying that we are justified or declared righteous in the courtroom of God by works alone. That would be salvation by works, which is heresy. Rather, James is arguing that living faith is not contradictory to works, but rather is active alongside works. So listen to how the author of Hebrew describes the events that Pastor Sampson read earlier from Genesis 22. Listen to what the author of Hebrew says in Hebrews 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. 
And he, who was, who, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He, that's Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You see, Abraham's work was an act of faith. Abraham offered Isaac up by faith. He did not rely on his own understanding. He did not offer Isaac up in order to be made right with God or to appease God's wrath. Rather, Abraham's faith in God enabled or empowered Abraham to obey. It was his faith that was working and active that produced his work. This is what the Apostle Paul calls the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. My friends, as Christians, every good work we do is an act of faith in Christ. Every good work we do is an act of faith in Christ. So we see that his faith and works were active together. We also see that his faith was completed by his works. His faith was completed by his works. Abraham's faith produced good works, and it was perfected by those works. Abraham's work served as a capstone to his faith. His willingness to offer Isaac revealed the true nature of his saving faith. Remember, God here in Genesis 22 is testing Abraham's faith. He's testing Abraham to see whether Abraham would trust in God or if Abraham would seek to fulfill God's promises in another way, just like he's done before. He did this with Ishmael. So God wanted to test the true merit of Abraham's faith and to grow his faith into full maturity or perfection. And this is exactly what James has already said in chapter 1. Think back to chapter 1, verse 2. James said, "'Count it all joy, my brothers,' When you meet trials or tests of various kinds, like the test Abraham faced, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In the same way, Abraham's faith was exposed as genuine, and it was strengthened into maturity as he chose to obey God's word. It is in this way that the scripture was fulfilled and Abraham was called a friend of God. The word fulfilled here means to fill up or complete, like filling up a cup to the brim. So in Genesis 15 verse 6, we see that Abraham trusted by faith in God's promises. And what, what did God do? God counted or credited Abraham as righteous. He was declared not guilty before the courtroom of God through his faith. And later in Genesis 22, Abraham fulfilled or lived out that righteousness to the brim 
by showing that God indeed was his greatest treasure and ultimate delight. Just think about what Abraham must have been going through, even as he walked up the mountain with Isaac. And we hear Isaac say to his dad, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And how does Abraham respond? He stands firm in faith, probably tears dripping down his eyes and says, God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God will do it. God is faithful. God is able. It is Abraham's faith that makes the hard choice to obey God's word, even when it costs Abraham that which is most precious to him. This is a faith that prefers God's way to our own. This is a type of faith that denies self, takes up our cross, and follows Christ. You see, Abraham was shown or proven to be a friend of God through his righteous deeds of love. This is what it means to really know God as our Father. Children of faith, those who are truly born again, love God and obey His commands no matter the cost. Children of faith, those who are truly born again, love God and obey His commands no matter the cost. So we see that Abraham was declared righteous once and for all. He was justified by faith in the courtroom of God in Genesis 15. Justification is by faith. But we also see in Genesis 22 that his works serve as evidence in the courtroom of God at the final judgment. So Abraham is saved by faith alone, and at the final day of judgment, his works serve as evidence to prove that Abraham really was born again. Abraham was declared righteous by faith at the moment of his conversion and is justified by works at the final judgment. This is what James means when he says we are justified by works. At the end of time, our works will declare us righteous. We will be proven to be righteous through our obedience of faith. This is why James is so insistent that faith is never alone. So he concludes his argument in verse 24. Look at verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now we know that Paul in Romans says that we are justified by faith alone. So are they contradicting one another? Well, no. James and Paul are addressing two different issues. Paul is explaining how we are saved. We are justified before God by faith alone. Friends, there's nothing that we can do to add or to subtract from the righteous work of Christ. There's no work of ours that can save us. Amen? Is that, that clear? Right? But James here is addressing something different. He's addressing the nature of our faith. Is that faith that saves real? 
Is it genuine? And the way we are justified by works is that our faith produces those works. Saving faith proves itself by what it does. So in this sense, in this sense, we are justified by faith alone. Sorry, we are not justified by faith alone, but justified by works. As John Calvin once wrote, it is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. I'll say it again. It is therefore faith alone that justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. It is always accompanied by good works and is perfected by good works. So we are declared righteous in the courtroom of God at the moment we trust in Christ. And one day, when we stand before the judge, we will be declared righteous as God looks at the fruit of our faith, as he looks at our works. Our works on the final day of judgment will justify us, showing that we indeed were truly born again. Our faith was genuine. This is why Jesus, listen to what Jesus says in Revelation 3 verse 1. Jesus exhorts the church in Sardis to continue in good works. This is why those who endure to the end are truly saved. And those who do not endure to the end are not saved. Those who have true saving faith will endure in faith and good works. So Jesus says in Revelation 3, he says to the church, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works completed in the sight of God. We must continue in faith and good works. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled the garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So, beloved, we are saved by faith alone, and everyone who endures in faith by producing good works will prove that they belong to Christ. Everyone who endures to the end Trusting in Christ, obeying Christ, no matter the cost, will be saved. Now, James makes his final remarks by calling a second witness in verse 25. So let's quickly look at verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? So just like Abraham... Rahab is justified by works when she received the, excuse me, when she received the spies. Notice that James is using the same exact language from verse 21. So then why does James even bring up Rahab? We know that Rahab is 
opposite to Abraham in almost every way. Abraham is a man. Rahab is a woman. Abraham is the father of Israel. Rahab is a lowly Gentile. Abraham is dignified. Rahab is a prostitute. You see, James wants to make clear that Abraham's faith, the faith that justifies, the faith that produces good works, is available to anyone and to everyone. We are freely offered God's gracious salvation. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But still, James reminds us that our background or our circumstances do not exempt us from obeying God's word. Just because Rahab was in a difficult situation did not exempt her from from trusting in God's word and obeying God's word. All of us, no matter your background or circumstances, are called to trust and obey. He, God, will supply the strength you need to follow him. Now James concludes by repeating this main point in verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Saving faith in Christ is always accompanied and completed by the obedience of faith. Friends, what is the measure of your faith? Each one in this room must examine our profession What does your life and your time say about your profession? Can you point to one command in the New Testament that you've done by faith? Maybe this past week, this past month, this past year. Just because you read your Bibles every day and come to church every week does not mean that you are born again. Are you unchanged by the word you hear week after week? You must not assume that just because you said a prayer once or even joined a church that you are truly saved. Faith without works is like the body without the spirit. It is dead and it will lead you to eternal destruction and hell. Ultimately, my friends, we have no hope to obey God's word apart from Christ. We cannot produce good works in our own strength. We cannot make our faith alive and active. We need a heart transplant. We need another's righteousness accredited to us. We need the Spirit of Christ to enable us to obey His Word. Friends, the good news of the Gospel is that God has not left us to ourselves. God in love sent His only Son to accomplish what we could never do. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, when he, was tempted, when he was tempted to abandon God's mission, he endured every trial and every temptation and did not sin. He obeyed perfectly in every way where we have failed. As the author of Hebrews says, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal life to all who obey him. He alone obeyed God the Father perfectly, and he stored up righteousness for everyone who believes. He offers his righteous life on the cross, and he bore God's wrath for our sin. He took the sinner's penalty upon himself, 
and he destroyed the power of death through his death on a cross. Jesus Christ was vindicated or declared as the righteous one, the only righteous one at his resurrection. And now everyone, everyone who turns from their sins and trusts in his finished work are forgiven of their trespass and declared righteous in the courtroom of heaven. All the righteousness that Christ accomplished on this earth is accredited. It's given to us. Not only so that we can be declared righteous in the courtroom, so that we, but also so that we can walk in his righteousness. Everyone who trusts in Christ's finished work, we can now walk in the righteousness or good works that he provides. We can walk in his victory over sin. My friends, are you discouraged with your fight against sin? Don't trust in yourself. Trust in Christ. He alone conquered our sin. We must walk in faith, trusting in his victory over our sin. On that final day, for everyone who trusts in Christ, God will vindicate us or justify us as he examines our life, a life that is full of good works, a life that is trusted in Christ and is endured through faith in him. A life that has produced good works that Jesus Christ has produced in and through us. My friends, if your life shows no evidence of saving faith, then today is a day of salvation. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone. He will save you and he will give you the grace you need to walk in obedience to his commands. Now, Grace Church, this is very applicable to us. You see, in our church covenant, we have summarized all the one another commands. That's imperatives. It means things we are called to obey through faith. And in just a moment, we are going to read our church covenant as we renew our vows and remember the promise that we have made to God and to one another. So during our time of reflection... As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, look over the church covenant and ask yourself, where do you need to grow in your obedience to Christ? Are there things that you are neglecting to do by faith? And if there are, repent of your sin and trust in the gracious provision of Jesus Christ. Obey his commands. And as we strive to endure in the faith, let us remember the endurance of the saints that have gone before us. And let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance. May we endure to the end. How? By looking to Jesus. He is the founder of our faith, and he is the perfecter of our faith. The one who, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame, and he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God as king of heaven. And for all of us who trust in Christ, on that final day, we will see him face to face. And we will hear those most blessed words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he 
bore our wrath on the cross. He has accomplished our righteousness. And we just ask that you'd help us to truly believe in Christ, that we would repent of our sin. We ask that your spirit would help us to walk in obedience, not trusting in ourselves, but trusting in his finished work. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.